Good afternoon. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Today we're here with Delmar Larson, chemistry professor at UC Davis, and we're going to be talking to him about his work on the STEMWiki Hyperlibrary, a series of wikis designed to be free textbook replacements for STEM fields. Uh, first up, I'd like to say congratulations on getting funded by the National Science Foundation. Thank you very much. It's pretty cool. Uh, so I guess let's just uh, get right into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and where you got the idea, how it got started. Uh, it started about seven, eight years ago. I was teaching a uh, physical chemistry for life sciences class, and the textbook uh, was a $200 textbook, and I uh, found it to be actually much poorer than it was when I decided to uh, assign it for my students. Uh, and I felt particularly bad about it, uh, and I was an assistant professor <laughs> at the time, and I decided that I can do something better. Um, However, as an assistant professor, uh, it was quite clear that uh, I needed a lot of help in order to do that. So a wiki infrastructure came up where students can actually uh, help contribute to, to making it work rather than me doing through going through all the work. Interesting. And when did you think it would get to the, when did you realize you could get this to the point where it could actually replace textbooks instead of just supplementing them? If I wanted to make a, an alternative for a single class, like this PCHEM class or general chemistry, I would have been done a long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. I had no idea when it would get to the level of being able to supplement the textbooks, or I, uh, but um, clearly we are at that stage right now, um, and right. it's it's a function of the many thousands of volunteers that have participated both in class and outside in making it work. Interesting. So, what kind of um, assessments have you done to see whether or not it it's as effective as traditional textbooks? Uh, last year, uh, spring of uh, 2014, actually, uh, I taught two back-to-back -back chemistry classes, 500 students each. Uh, mm -hmm. One class used the ChemWiki as the uh, sole textbook, and the other one used the Petrucci textbook that we used. Um, in combination with the IM STEM assessment uh, people on campus, uh, we um, ran this pilot where I basically taught the same uh, material, same identical lectures, I had the same TA students, gave the same exams, uh, and made it as nearly identical as possible with the exception of the textbook. Uh, and then we went through uh, a lot of different data analysis routines and came up with the upshot that the uh, ChemWiki, to use the st statistician's perspective, is not inferior to the conventional <laughs> textbook, or as I argue, is just as good. That's great to hear. As someone who hates paying for textbooks, that's uh, very exciting. So how, how do you think you're going to go about convincing schools uh, to, to switch to something like this? I imagine that might, even if you could prove it with uh, statistically, it still might be difficult. Since textbooks are a lot like healthcare, where the person making the purchasing decisions, the teacher, is not the same as the person actually paying for the product, the students. Not to mention that some professors write their own books and that they want to sell, so it leads to a kind of wacky incentive system. Yes, it's actually very difficult. It's remarkable the amount of resistance there is for adopting the SERV project for multiple reasons. We're actually not spending any effort to convince a school because the actual decision in most departments, uh, at least in university level, uh, for what textbooks are for specific classes uh, handled by the faculty or the instructor record. Mm -hmm. So we just have to convince individual people in order to do that, under the hopes that we'll be able to get a critical mass in the corresponding department in order to then uh, do a widespread adoption. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to get there. So in the last year and a half, as we started to go live, we've had somewhere in the order of 30 different campuses that have adopted the ChemWiki specifically. Um, it's saving somewhere on the order of a million dollars, uh, and we would expect 
that number to go up exponentially like everything else that uh, the project is doing. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah. Good to hear. Um, so when did, you, uh, when did you decide to expand it beyond chemistry to all these other fields? Uh, about two years after we started the project with the ChemWiki, so um, 2009. I always had a desire in order to uh, make the textbooks mirror how we want uh, our education to be. Uh, so in other words, we don't want our students to, to just master the corresponding material in a class, but to be able to integrate the material in a consistent infrastructure within their brains uh, in order to be better than the sum of the parts. Uh, and the way to go about doing that is to make not a hyper- textbook, but to make a hyper-library, hence the term for the greater project. And that uh, required, um, the ChemWiki was uh, an enormous amount of effort, and then trying to expand to the BioWiki and the StatWiki and the GeoWiki and the mm -hmm. MathWiki and blah, 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 uh, it made it uh, an enormous effort. Uh, but fortunately, this grant with the NSF gives us support in order to be able to do that. Uh, in fact, just on campus, I have... Um, a significant amount of money dedicated for undergraduate support in order to build this. So I have what I refer to as the hyper-librarian army, and they meet <laughs> together. In fact, they met together uh, just this afternoon, uh, and they just basically sit down, oftentimes with no uh, discussions, although I order pizza, and we just basically <laughs> construct and copy and integrate, and, uh, and the results of that should be quite obvious in the near future. Mm -hmm. Can imagine. So uh, I, I've heard that a lot of um, textbook companies, due to the, the dramatically falling profits due to piracy and used textbooks and stuff like that, are switching a lot to um, interactive textbooks because they're a lot um, doing online only is, is both a lot cheaper to produce and much harder to copy. And it's easier to, to, to sell it to people. So I was wondering, how are you going to are you going to include any elements of that? Or are you is this going to be are you going to limit the the. Uh, STEM wiki to replacing traditional textbooks only? So when we decided to make this project, uh, when we decided to adopt the wiki infrastructure, we were trying to make something that looked as close to a conventional textbook as possible. The reason for that is that we wanted to make something that faculty felt comfortable in order to adopt. And if we produced something that was radically different, uh, mm -hmm. we felt that the culture shock associated with using <laughs> something like that uh, would uh, provide another barrier for adoption. Uh, I get that. That being said, uh, and especially with this new grant, we started to implement uh, more engaging infrastructure. So we introduced what's called JSMall, which is a JavaScript uh, infrastructure that we can rotate molecules, rotate proteins uh, give people a better than a 2D image off of what's going on and uh, we're implementing a homework database system uh, in order to complement uh, the traditional textbook uh, a new data analysis infrastructure called sage math in order to be able to bring everything together um, yeah. so we're going to really expand the capabilities in order to go head to head with uh, our commercial uh, competitors in order to make this thing uh, as productive as possible. But ultimately, once we get things to the right level, the key difference, obviously, is that we're free. Uh, <laughs> and, That'll take and you those, pretty far, I think. Yeah, and those textbooks are definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. The success of the project is based exclusively on the number of volunteers that we have in order to make that work, both s students and faculty. So mm -hmm. if anyone is interested in contributing to um, uh, beaten the man, uh, <laughs> you certainly should uh, contact me, and I'm more than willing to uh, bring everyone on board in order to make this thing work. Uh, and I believe that this will work. Uh, our success is uh, growing significantly. 
Well, it's a fantastic idea, and uh, people seem to be enthusiastic about it. So uh, why don't you tell us where, where people can contact you to get involved? Uh, you can contact me via email. It's the easiest way, um, at uh, dlarsen, D-L-A-R-S-E-N, at ucdavis.edu. Uh, and the email address is at the front of any of the corresponding STEM wikis of the hyperlibrary project. It's not hard to find me with just a simple Google search. Cool. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Professor Larson, and best of luck with the project. Great. Thank you very much. Graham, thanks for that. We hope a lot of you will find that useful. Now, we must note, meanwhile, that we're disappointed here at Radio Parallax that Yet again, we have been denied the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, we kind of think it's a good idea to reward uh, good behavior, but I'm beginning to wonder about this whole Medal of Freedom thing. Is this part of the greater trend in America to award trophies for showing up? I mean, President Obama has given a Presidential Medal of Freedom to Lee Hamilton, former congressman and foreign policy expert. Congressman Hamilton did an excellent job of... Covering up lots of relevant matters in the 9-11 investigation. And we think it's an honorable thing to award Shirley Chisholm, the late lawmaker who was the nation's first African-American congresswoman, a medal. And we can even see giving one to Willie Mays, sort of, and the late Yogi Berra. But, I don't know, Emilio and Gloria Estefan of the Miami Sound Machine... James Taylor, Barbara Streisand, and Steven Spielberg? I mean, Spielberg, the guy that ruined Hollywood? No, I don't want to get into that. I don't know. I can actually see giving a presidential Medal of Freedom to Steven Sondheim just because he's just such a great composer and lyricist, but boy, I don't know. I just, I just scratched my head over some of these awards. And, and another award I really scratched my head over is the Mark Twain Prize. How can it be that the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor awarded at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. This year went to Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. I mean, why cut out Joe Piscopo? And this with just a tinge of sadness. I realize that a lot of listeners have no idea who Joe Piscopo is. But anyway, we play a clip to make fun of Eddie Murphy, except I'm not sure we can find one that doesn't have the F word in it ten times, which frankly seemed to constitute about half of Eddie Murphy's humor, but I digress. We've got about five minutes left. Let's just do a few items, maybe some obituary items. But first, I want to quote from this piece, which I've had sitting on the desk now week after week and never seemed to get to it. New scientists noted that there's some problems in the field of psychology. The magazine posed the question of, well, can you trust the latest psychology studies? Well, maybe not. Researchers that tried to do so were able to replicate just 39 out of 100 studies published in three journals in 2008. Originally, 97% of the results were statistically significant. The second time around, just 36% were. For more on that, check out Science Magazine. And speaking of science, or not speaking of science, uh, I did note that the Sacramento Bee and other publications will, on a regular basis, publish the lucky numbers in Powerball and the Mega Millions and the Super Lotto. I presume they do this so that people can look at the numbers that didn't hit and then bet on them because they're likely to come up that much sooner, right? I mean, why else would they publish these random numbers? I don't get it. 
Now, from the obituary column of The Economist magazine, at least their 2015 year in review uh, special issue, we have the disturbing news that a lot of important but difficult words are going to evidently vanish from America's SAT tests in the coming year. The magazine saw fit to salute the soon-to-be-absent words. And uh, we at Radio Parallax are disturbed by the removal of some of these words. These are some pretty darn good words, and they ought to be kept around. People, people who have taken the SAT test ought to know some of these words, if not all of them. I guess what I'll do here is just read off some of these words and let you make the call, dear listener. But disappearing from the SAT tests in 2016 will be, among others, recalcitrant, aberration, demagogue, despot, reprobate, virtuoso, alacrity, egregious, obstreperous, garrulous, denigrate, vituperate, also cajole, carouse, cavort, also incontrovertible, arbitrary, morass, invective, surfeit, largesse, also fatuous, extraneous, umbrage, diaphanous, ephemeral, noxious, preponderance, puerile, Damn it, these are good words. They need to be kept around. Will someone please come forward and help us address this issue? Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And uh, first on our list would be Dr. Andy. What do you think of this? If you're listening, sir, please drop us a line. We can talk about it. All right, in our two minutes left, we're going to go out with an obituary. In this case, it's from Michael Gross. Michael Gross made a name for himself back in the early 70s when he was with the National Lampoon. Now, from about 1970 to 1974, the National Lampoon did some pretty good stuff. And Michael Gross, as the magazine's irreverent art director, devised several enduring images, most famously the cover for 1973's Death Issue. And yes, I do have a copy of this issue at home because of its memorable cover, which features a man's hand holding a gun to a dog's head. Read the headline, If you don't buy this magazine, we'll kill this dog. The next year, Gross left the magazine to start his own design partnership. In 1979, he moved from New York to Hollywood, and with the help of Lampoon-era friends like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, he found production work in Hollywood. And this included his work for Ghostbusters, which produced one of the world's most famous cultural icons, the logo for Ghostbusters. Michael Gross was no doubt pleased to see that logo replicated on T-shirts, birthday cakes, and tattooed onto people's bodies. He said he realized it was a true cultural phenomenon when, when attending an air show at the height of the Cold War, he spotted the image on the nose of a B-52. Anyway, I have to admit, I don't know art, but I do know what I like. And I did like a lot of what Michael Gross produced. We salute him. That about does it for today's program. Our thanks to William Poundstone, who spoke to us many years ago, and for Graham Smith for his continuing good work. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This show, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan, I'm Douglas Everett, at least that's my story and I'm sticking to it. We'll see ya. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! If there's something weird and it don't look good, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! 
afraid of no ghosts. I ain't afraid of no ghosts.